This podcast is presented by Resolver, a tech company for risk and security. Hey guys, I'm Tim Chisholm, and you're listening to The Watchdog, your eyes and ears on the latest news and rising threats in risk and security. Every week, we bring industry experts to talk about the latest threats facing organizations today. So we hear about corporate fraud scandals so often that we've become almost apathetic to the elaborate deceit and cover-ups required to pull them off on such a large scale. From the infamous Enron fraud case and bankruptcy in the early 2000s, to the Equifax data breach cover-up last year, to the Samsung scandal that led to the impeachment of the South Korean president and the arrest of their Samsung Air, fraud and financial crimes don't seem to be going away. In fact, according to an article in Risk Management magazine, fraud continues to be on the rise, with 84% of companies reporting at least one occurrence in the past year alone. So, clearly fraud is a risk for pretty much every business, enterprise, and organization. In today's episode of The Watchdog, I am joined by Mike Savage, a certified fraud examiner and member of the Fraud Investigation and Dispute Services Global Executive at Ernst & Young. Mike will lend his expertise on this topic to discuss infamous fraud cases. Uh, We'll be talking about the Elizabeth Holmes scandal that hit the news and headlines recently, and ways that companies can prevent and detect fraud and why whistleblowing is so dangerous. So, first of all, hi, Mike, and welcome for joining us on the show. Hi, Tim. Great to be with you on Watchdog. Really looking forward to it. So you could probably tell from the accent, I'm from South Africa originally. <laughs> and I make a little joke. I, that's where I've got a good grounding on asset misappropriation and corruption, which is kind of helpful <laughs> in my line of work. I'm based in, in North America now for the last 15 years and focus my whole working day on fraud and corruption and, and financial misstatements. What got you into fraud and what was the sort of draw of the entire enterprise? Good question. I was in South Africa and, and Nelson Mandela's government just came into power and they wanted to set the tone in the country going forward. And I got a call saying they had a member of parliament needed to be prosecuted and they were looking for a witness, a, a forensic accountant who could testify and say where the money went and, mm. and where it should have gone. And it's kind of hard to say no to an opportunity like that. So I said yes. And that's what got me down this road. Interesting. And so then how did you end up in North America? Well, Enron, WorldCom, all those financial statement <laughs> scandals were breaking. And, and in, in my world, the world of the forensic accountant, it's, it's all around either corruption or asset misappropriation or fraudulent statements. Hmm. And I thought I, I, I just wasn't going to get exposure to fraudulent statements in Africa. The companies just aren't that large and there wasn't that same extent of misstatement. And so I, I came to, to North America for a work experience for three years hmm. and never left. So is it fair to say then that is North America somewhat at the, at the forefront, at least, of the ability to manage and mitigate fraud? Or is it just a case of their size of the companies make it the more appealing target for, a, I guess, a, a young go-getter? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a, a lot of different factors, no one single factor. But obviously, uh, a very strong regulatory environment in North America. Think about the, the SEC and the other regulators in North America. Um, are very vigorous about enforcing rules and regulations. Uh, You have very, very large companies, and so obviously they have a broad span. Many of the North American companies are, in fact, truly global companies. Mm. So to the extent that there's an issue anywhere in the world, there's a a ripple effect that that reaches North America. And and I think also the culture in North America, the, the commercial culture, the business culture, is different. There's an expectation of, of loyalty and obligation to the employer 
which is in many respects stronger than in many other locations around the world where employees are sometimes more torn with loyalty to family members. So think about nepotism and that sort of thing, mm. or loyalty to their local community. That makes a lot of sense. You know, that, that leads me into something I'm really curious about. So for listeners that aren't too familiar with the Elizabeth Holmes scandal, she's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Theranos and was the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. She was even referred to as the next Steve Jobs. Don't know if that's a compliment or not, but that's what she was referred to. Uh, she created a revolutionary blood test that used a very small amount of blood for blood tests. Instead of withdrawing blood using a needle, the test only required a prick at the finger. But just recently, Elizabeth Holmes was accused of widespread fraud, exaggerating and even lying about her technology while raising $700 million from investors. So, Mike, what I'm curious about is how does a company get to a point where a fraud is allowed to reach that apex? I mean, you would think that something like this should have been caught way earlier in the company's growth. Right. Well, obviously, I can't speak specifically about that particular case. I, I don't have any knowledge. But, mm. um, but generally speaking, we do see this where uh, entrepreneurs are, are driven, very, very focused, obviously very vested in whatever their concept is, whether it's a new technology or a new way of doing things or whatever it might be, their vision and their idea uh, drives them with complete commitment to, to push this thing forward. And that laser focus is, it, it's like the flip side of the coin. The laser focus means that almost any evidence that, that is, a, is perceived as an obstacle is put to the side, suppressed, moved aside. And very often, inherent in the entrepreneurial business is first we go and get the business working and second we put the controls in place. Mm. That's why you often see larger organizations tend to be more, have a more stable control environment. The business is established, might still be growing, but the control environment has settled. It's been put in place over the years. It's been fine-tuned, and it's working and tested effectively. Entrepreneurs don't always have that luxury around them. They, they're so busy just getting the day job done, and they don't often have the resources. So very typical of, a, of an entrepreneurial company is this strong reliance on oversight from and supervision from the people at the top. Um, whereas bigger organizations have the ability perhaps to rely on segregation of duties that you know, one person's a check and balance on another person. That's often missing in entrepreneurial companies. So then in an entrepreneurial situation, is it a case of, it's, is, it, is it still malice? Are people aware that they're committing a kind of fraud or is it really just a case of you are going to do whatever that you have to do to, to, to succeed and it's only in the aftermath as you start putting internal controls in place that people become aware of uh, a possible fraud that they've committed? Well, I, I think we, we, we should separate the company from the person, right? Fair, and, yeah. Um, and and I, I've met probably more white collar criminals than I've ever wanted to meet in my career. But, but one unique thing about every single one of them is uh, they are the cynic in me says you, you have to win the trust to breach the trust. Every mm. single one of them is has endearing features. They they are uh, are engaging. They focused. They they're not necessarily mean and nasty people. You wouldn't dial nine one one if you saw them walk past the boardroom. It's mm. you know they 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 and in their heads um, the way I, I I try to explain it best they look at themselves in the mirror every single morning. And in their heads, they think that what they have done yesterday and what they're about to do today is in some way 
capable of being rationalized. Hmm. And, and the different rationalizations tend to coalesce. There's, there's borrowing. I'll just I'll pay it back. It's just for a short period. It will turn around. It will get fixed. And another one is, is the noble cause. I'm doing it for the team or I'm doing it for a good purpose. And the end justifies the means. I'm just doing it to accommodate. And, and the third common rationalization is, is one of entitlement. I deserve it. It's owed to me. The, the person that's the victim here is, is a faceless, uh, emotionless corporation. They would never miss it. It's immaterial to them. But it's so in their heads, whether we like the rationalization or not, and generally we don't, mm. in their heads, they're thinking that there's some justification for what they're doing. So do you find in your experience that even after people get caught, are they still able to, in their own heads, rationalize their actions? Or is there a point where they become aware of the fact that they've committed a fraud and the cover-up begins? Well, generally, when the judge bangs the gavel and says you're going away, <laughs> it becomes fairly clear to them that whatever's going on in their heads, society doesn't agree with it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strong held and, and, and held over a long period of time belief that they have this rationalization. So it's a very hard thing to let go of. It's, it's mm. a difficult and challenging thing for them to, to accept. And so they go through the, the grieving stages. You know, there's the, the angle, anger, there's the denial. It takes a while to get to acceptance. Some never do, but I think most do. Most do get to the point where they just can't reconcile any longer um, this rationalization that they had, mm. the reality that they're now in, you know, particularly once, once it's all out in the open and, and people know about it and people have spoken to them about it, it becomes harder to deny that what they were doing was wrong. If it ultimately comes down to the choices that the individual makes, what are the kinds of protections that a company can put in place to detect these things, ideally early enough that they don't become destructive? But how does that kind of uh, control system look? All right. Well, the first thing the company should figure out, where is the line in the sand? We all operate under the laws of the country. But very often companies would, would try and set the barrier of a bar a little higher than that. Because you know you don't want your employees constantly sailing close to the to the to the fine edge of the law, and so companies would put in place policies, code of conduct, and, 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 and policy guidance that says this is okay and this is not okay, and and very often they'd also put in place procedures, you know, much more detailed guidance that says in this circumstance this is how we as a company want you as the employee to deal with something. So you've got a policy and procedure framework that's an important foundation. Not everything can be you know, anticipated in writing, so culture is important. Um, and fundamentally, the things that could go wrong in, in uh, industry, we think about what could go wrong. Mm. Uh, the things that could go wrong in any particular industry are, are generally well known. Right? Somebody's going to steal; they're going to steal something that's worthwhile. Much easier to steal cash than to steal a piece of land. Right? Mm. And so, so you can do a risk assessment. You can say in, in this industry, in this business, these are the assets that are most likely at risk of being misappropriated. So you can focus your controls around those assets and you can put in place specific controls that would alert you if somebody's taking the money or if, uh, if somebody's attempting to take the money. 
So that gets you to internal controls. If you've got a, a proper risk assessment, uh, uh, then, then it becomes much easier to say, well, all right, how am I going to mitigate the risk? As a company, we've got many, many, many controls, but there are some that are going to be much more effective at, at managing this particular risk. Mm -hmm. Those controls, consider if the design's adequate and, and the leading practices then also test that it's operating effectively from time to time. And that's the, it's, a, it's, it's not rocket science, um, but it's a, it's a tried and trusted way of making sure that, that there's adequate protection um, in a cost-efficient and effective way. Are there any kinds of examples of the sort of controls that companies put in place? Uh, anything in your past experience even that, that comes to mind? Sure. Um, well, at, at a very simple level, we'd all be very familiar with uh, two signatories. If one person can sign on the check, sign a check and, and money can go out of the bank account, then all your trust is on that one person. If you have dual signatories, then one can be a check and balance on the other. If I were to have signing powers and try and pay myself a million dollars and somebody else had to sign off on that check, well, the check and balance, would, if you forgive the pun, would, would surface the issue and, and the alarms would go off and the money wouldn't leave. So the, 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 think of that as, as, a, as a segregation of duties, and that operates at many levels. Um, people that have responsibility for recording, for example, would not necessarily have the authority um, to, to release the asset. Um, and we'd separate that from people who have control over the asset. And so if you can build a, a system of internal controls that, that separates the, the authority, the recording, and the control of the asset, as between different people, then effectively your employees become a check one on, one on the other. And that has a, a strong deterrent effect. It just makes it less attractive for somebody to even try. And it also has... has has the effect of, of likely detecting it when it does happen. Is the fact that it, the people themselves become almost the best kind of deterrent, does that then mean that a sort of a company culture really has to be put into place to create this sort of disincentivization, I guess, that I just wonder about what it kind of takes from a company perspective to make these sort of, I mean, I like the example of, of having multiple eyes on any particular issue, but um, is that what it really comes down to? Is it individuals are the best checks against other individuals? Yes, because you know, they're there all the time. They're focused on the company's business. Um, and, and so if something goes wrong, the first people that would notice it would be the people in the workplace themselves. And, and the, the tone, we've all heard the, the, the sorry sayings, the fish rots from the head. For sure, the tone is set at the top. So if management's entire business model is built on, on crooking and cheating and, uh, and taking advantage of vulnerable business partners, uh, it's likely that, that employees will, will replicate that. They'll copy that behavior because that's what it seems to be successful higher up in the organization. And that leads you to a company that, that has very poor ethics and things could go wrong because people would struggle to differentiate between taking advantage of a customer and taking advantage of, of the employer. You compare that to an organization where you have um, independent directors, you have strong tone at the top, seasoned people who, who don't tolerate wrongdoing, who require ethical behavior, um, a CEO who, who is appointed because of exactly what he does, which is 
conduct business with absolute integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that tends to ripple down through the organization. And culture is a very, it's a very nebulous thing because we struggle to measure it sometimes. But, but there's much empir- empirical evidence that shows that when the tone from the top is set right, it's just so much easier for companies to control and protect themselves against fraud and corruption. When we're talking about fraud, it actually it raises a question in my head. Is, is fraud just a single blanket statement, or are there actually different kinds of fraud that people have to be on the lookout for? There are different types of fraud. So, for example, if you think about fraudulent statements, that might be fraudulent financial statements. Mm-hmm. It could also be, for example, um, a fraudulent CV in a job application. Hmm. Um, asset misappropriation. I touched on this a little earlier. You know, what assets should you be protecting? And, and historically, certainly when I started doing this work, everyone said, well, I'll focus on the cash. Why does a bank robber rob a bank? Because that's where the cash is. Mm. Cash is, is easily converted and, and used um, by, by fraudsters. But we live in a world now where things that, that used to be very hard to launder or convert into cash are now very easy to launder and convert into cash. So think about, for example, inventory. In, in the old days, it would be really hard to take product from the company and then go and try and sell it to mm. customers. But now we've got Kijiji and all these you know, Amazon, all these websites that, that allow you to very easily and simply um, take what you've stolen, convert it into cash. In fact, had a, had a, a client once who, uh, who, was, who was worried about how much they were spending. They were in the medical industry and, and they purchased uniforms for, for their staff, you know, doctors and, and nurses. Mm-hmm. wearing these, these outfits. And, and they were so proud of themselves because they, they couldn't understand. They were very proud that they'd found the supplier who was selling them the stuff at, at 30% of list price. But they couldn't understand how the total expense was just way ahead of whatever it used to be in previous years. Right. And they discovered that one of the employees was stealing the uniforms and then selling it back to them through one of the websites. <laughs> Okay. Um, so that's the asset misappropriation. Um, and, then, and then the third would be illegal acts. And illegal acts would be things like price fixing, economic extortion, bribery, conflicts of interest, that sort of thing. So I love that story about the medical uniform. So it's uh, in a situation like that, or I guess in almost any of these situations, what is it that people are looking out for? What can a company look out for in order to make sure that these sorts of things aren't going on? I mean, I guess looking at your balance sheet's a pretty easy example, but are there other kind of key risk indicators that people should be on the lookout for? Of course, looking at the financial statements. I'm an accountant, so, so that's <laughs> an obvious thing. Um, but, but there's also uh, behaviors in the workplace. You know, um, People who are, are misappropriating assets are doing it because they very often want the lifestyle. And so if we have somebody in the workplace and they drive themselves a fancy luxury car and they've got a cottage and an exotic house and they always go on fancy vacations and they've got all the toys money could buy mm. and, and the annual earnings of $50,000 a year mm. and their story is I won the lottery or I got, you know, I got lucky gambling or 
um, my grandmother died two or three times and I got lots of inheritances. And right. if it's too good to be true, it probably is exactly that. Right. True. So be alert. Not that there's anything wrong with a big inheritance or winning the lottery. But if somebody's living way beyond their means, then that's a risk, a risk flag. That's a factor that you should be thinking about. Um, and pay attention to, to what people say. Um, very often, co-workers notice the, the inappropriate behaviors. They notice that somebody's doing something wrong. And it causes for them a stress. I, I follow the rules, and, and now I see somebody breaking the rules next to me. I get upset with them, and, and it's frustrating. And they do want to talk about it. If, you've got a, if you give them an opportunity, a forum in which they can talk about it, you make it okay for them to talk about it, they'll tell you about it. And that's... that's why whistleblower hotlines, for example, are, are so, so effective is because most employees would like to follow what the company says, which is, you know, tell your boss and, and escalate it through the chain of command. And if you're not comfortable with that, tell HR or legal or internal audit. Um, and, and if that doesn't work, you've always got the whistleblower hotline, which gives you other protections. You can stay anonymous. You, you've got protected from being victimized. And, and these are channels which I would say to you 15, 20 years ago were not highly respected. I remember sitting in front of a CFO and saying, here's a whistleblower data. It's got very specific information on it. Why are you not looking into it? And, and the CFO said to me, well, if this person couldn't even put their name to it, hmm. why should I bother looking into it? Now, in the world that we live in today, we'd all sit back with, raised eyebrows at a comment like that but that's how it was not too long ago so yeah it's interesting because i remember last year when uh cynthia cooper was giving a talk at intersect about her time at worldcom and the stigma that got attached to the whistleblowers at her company and the amount of damage it did to their careers to their reputations both inside of the company obviously but also outside has has the culture around whistleblowing then really changed all that much it, it's it sort of seems like for, for all that it does a kind of public good it also seems to be that you don't necessarily want to be the company that has someone on your staff that's gonna start poking holes at the at the bad stuff uh, when maybe you really kind of don't want them to yeah it, it, I think this it's a journey I don't think the, that, that we're at the ultimate end stage yet I, I think there's a, a much broader and, and better understanding of the role that a whistleblower can, can play. Um, and unfortunately, I think very often the very best whistleblowers are people who were complicit and have decided to, to break with the, the fraudulent behavior. Hmm. And so, so there's this inherent distaste or dislike for somebody who has so much knowledge and, and only now is coming forward with it. On the other hand, I think generally speaking, most companies would say, well, we'd rather know about it now than never know about it. Rather hear about it a little later than, than never, never learn about it, because that way we can stop it. So one of the things we absolutely know about fraud is it doesn't generally just go away. Right. It gets more frequent. It gets bigger. You know, as, as the person gets used to a fancier lifestyle, it, the ratchet goes up, it never, it never goes down. And so companies generally understand that no matter what their view of the motivations of the whistleblower, you know, might be personal, might be malicious, doesn't really matter. The key thing is to focus on the information communicated by the whistleblower because that could be valuable to the company. 
whether in terms of stopping future losses or averting uh, regulatory interventions or class actions, whatever it might be, if the information is valid, the motivation for sharing it is not really that important. Have you ever come across a situation where an individual like sort of stopped their path of fraud sort of midstream, or, or does it always inevitably escalate until someone gets caught? I think uh, um, very, very rarely. Uh, you know, if, if they do stop, it's, it's generally because somebody's getting close to figuring out what they're up to, and then they stop and they move on somewhere else and start it up again. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a pattern of behavior, and, and behavioral patterns don't change easily, and this is a really, really good reason. Is that then something that... Is that why a company maybe should be that much more on, on the lookout for this kind of thing that you really can't sweep it under the rug, that those sorts of bad actors will always be motivated to continue until they're actually a stone wall is put in front of them? Absolutely. And uh, you know, the, the, the easy way to look at this would be, well, okay, uh, think of a bank and the teller stole $100. Does anyone really care? That's not the most egregious sum of money in the whole world. But if that teller is going to be stealing $100 every single day for the rest of their working careers, mm. you get to a pretty big number. And so the way to look at it is not just, well, what has the person stolen, but what if they were left to their own devices, how much would the loss be? And then you get to a much clearer answer on why it is important to act sooner rather than later and to stop that behavior. Is there, within companies, is there a certain amount of risk tolerance for fraud? Like when you're sort of building out your internal controls, is there, what's the tolerance look like for a company? Yeah, it's well, uh, a good point. Um, I, I, there is for sure a level of risk tolerance. Um, a, a classic example back where I came from in, in South Africa, uh, school children typically didn't have you know, much in the way of, of stationary pens and pencils. Mm. And, and almost every company the stationary cupboard would be emptied at the beginning of the school year. Right? And so the companies would know that this is actually employees taking stationary from the company and that they probably are using it so that their kids are properly equipped when they go to school. Mm. And they look at that and they say, well, it's not a big expense. It's an important thing for our, for our employees. This is not the hill we're going to die on. We're not going to terminate somebody because they took some pencils and paper mm. out of the stationary cupboard. And so that's an example of, of risk tolerance where the cost of putting the controls in just far exceeds the, the benefits that might be had from, from stopping those losses. Is there then a particular industry or particular industries that are more susceptible or is this a fairly, uh, a fairly possible, uh, uh, I don't know, like enterprise, I guess, within a company, uh, regardless of the, of the industry? Yeah. Well, fraud's a human behavior, so it's, it's implicit if, gosh, I wish that when somebody joined our company, uh, we could give them a little inoculation and a training session, and then they wouldn't do anything stupid for the rest of their working careers. Right. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. Hmm. I, I think there are nuances, so different industries, you know, what is more vulnerable and the ways of, of misappropriating assets or misstating results or breaking laws are different based on, on the unique characteristics of that industry and its marketplace and its customers. Um, but I, I would say there's there's no business that's truly immune from fraud. And even, even if you think of, for example, NGOs and charitable endeavors, mm -hmm. where, where people, you know, the vast majority of the people associated with those organizations 
are, are truly committed to doing good and helping others and uh, in many respects a selfless calling. So in many respects it's, it's a selfless calling uh, but even those organizations do find themselves to be the victim of fraudsters from time to time. So there's, there's no business that's completely immune from fraud. There's no, there's no vaccination sadly. Also, when people think of fraud, I should say, when I think of fraud anyway, you tend to really think about either, like, like you said, cash or physical assets, that kind of thing. But as the economy becomes more digital, is the landscape changing in any way uh, that fraud has become more of a, of a cybersecurity or, or a cyber issue than it might have been even 10, 15 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point, Tim. So, so what can be stolen is now different. Now that companies have vast amounts of, of information, data, in the old days, if, if you picture it, to steal the company's entire list of customers with their credit card numbers and all of that, you'd have to load up container loads of documents and ship them out of the, the company's premises and somebody would notice it because it's visible. Mm-hmm. But in this day and age, you could load up a thumb drive with all of that information and walk out with it in your pocket. It's much less visible. And also those assets are much more marketable and, and much more valuable. You can, you can sell people's credit cards on the black market for you know, a couple of dollars each, depending on, on the quality of the credit card and what other information you've got with it. But it, it's a cash commodity. And so what can be stolen and how it can be stolen is now just so much easier. And companies, much like the entrepreneurs, that now that we've got these fintech companies starting up and even old companies moving very rapidly into um, technology-oriented services, whether it's data analytics or or more directly in their operational process, the controls around the data are just not what they need to be because Mm -hmm. the systems are evolving so quickly and because the people who, who are looking to get access to those systems are becoming so much more sophisticated. 20 years ago, it was some kid sitting in his mum's basement hacking away because he had nothing better to do and he was just curious to get in and see what could be seen. But mm-hmm. now it's, it's organized criminal networks who are specifically targeting companies and they know what they're looking for when they go there and they get it. And you don't even know that they've been in because they don't steal your stuff. You don't see that it's missing. They copy your stuff. You still have it, just they have a copy of it. And while you're blissfully unaware that that somebody else has got a copy of it. They're going out there and they're selling it and using it for their own purposes. And so it takes you a long time to be able to respond to figure out that in fact you've been compromised. See, that's a fascinating point to me too, because I find that risk programs within companies don't tend to be staffed by people with necessarily a particularly high cybersecurity or hacking background even. So does it expose companies in any kind of way that if their risk program doesn't have the internal knowledge to build a controlled framework around those kinds of, of threats? Yeah, absolutely. I know many companies are wrestling with this exact issue because um, it, it's harder to picture where the exposures are because it all sits on a computer somewhere. It's in bits and bytes. It's behind that little black box. And so it's much harder to visualize what the control should be and how they might be compromised unless you have yourself a technical background and what we are seeing is that companies are becoming more sophisticated so in the in the in the parts of the organization that tend to be the check and balance whether it's compliance 
your internal audit, increasingly there's a focus on, on making sure that you, you've got people who understand the platforms, who understand what controls should be in place and are able to test and confirm that they are operating effectively. So then let's say I'm suspicious of someone in my company. I'm looking at my producer, Jen, right now. Highly suspicious of, of fraud. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Um, what, so what steps should I then take to be able to sort of verify this kind of thing and report it up to the company? Like what, what would be the next right. thing that I should do? Well, I would say the first thing that you should do is speak to somebody in the company rather than try and investigate it yourself. Okay. Right. Um, just, just as you mentioned, uh, it's, it's hard to put controls around electronic data unless you've got a really good understanding of electronic data. Sometimes it's, it, although well-intentioned, it's not the best thing to try and investigate something like this yourself. And so think, go to the company's policies. Generally, there's guidance on who you should be speaking to, whether that's through the chain of command or through a, through a channel. Report what you've seen, and, and that achieves a few things. Others might have seen something similar, and, and so whoever's receiving all of these reports receives pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. They might have a more complete picture than you could ever get to on your own. Hmm. Also, they would have generally more resources um, available to them and, and a better understanding of what should be done to investigate. They could, for example, preserve emails or documents, which, which you on your own might not think of doing or might not have the access to do, so preserving the evidence. And then also a process without violating people's rights, a process to, to get to the bottom of it, to get to the truth and, and figure out exactly what was happening that would be easier for somebody who's a little distant from the individual to look into and deal with. And also think about um, how, the, how it might change the dynamic in the workplace. Yeah. If, if you were to be investigating your producer today, <laughs> decide that actually she wasn't the next, the next big crook in the world, um, would you still be able to have a constructive, productive working relationship going forward? Hmm. And so for all those reasons, very often it's, it's, it's a good idea to, to report it within the organization rather than deal with it yourself. And does that function typically sit with HR, the C-suite? Like, is, is there a typical uh, communications path or is it really company dependent? Well, it's company dependent. Uh, very often HR is familiar with dealing with workplace issues. And so sometimes these things do find their way to HR. More commonly in North America, I'd say they find their way to legal because there's legal implications and consequences and because of the importance of legal privilege. Being able to put privilege around an investigation, make sure that the information is secure and, um, and confidentiality is respected mm -hmm. is an important part, especially for protecting, remember this employee that's, that, that against whom many allegations might be made might be completely innocent. Right. And so, you know, if the whole workplace knows about this, this allegation, these things get a life of their own. An, an example I had was a head of procurement would receive a visit from a vendor every last Friday of the month, every month. And the vendor would come with a big brown paper bag, corny as a place arm. And people were upset about this, and, and, and eventually somebody reported it. And at the end of the day, after the investigation, it turned out that the brown paper bag was not full of folding money. Brown paper bag just happened to have a sandwich from my <laughs> favorite daddy. So for, for months and months and months, everyone thought the guy was on the take, and mm -hmm. it turned out that actually what he was doing was just getting a sandwich from his favorite daddy. 
it's, it's easy to see a little thing and leap to a big conclusion and, and, and do somebody a great injustice. So then I guess sort of last question uh, before we wrap up, what ways are there that a company can create sort of awareness and training on this topic? I said, besides sort of internal documentation, is there something they can do to really train up their employee base to both be on the lookout for the right things, but also to know when to maybe, you know, let something go or not, you know, get too worried about the brown paper bag? Of course there is. And one of the things, depending on the culture of the company, and that varies across geography, but break the taboo. Talking about fraud is not necessarily a bad thing. There are people out there who, who will happily perpetrate a fraud on the company because that's how they make a living. And sometimes those people are inside the company. Even good people have low points in, in their careers and their lifetimes where they they're in a dark place where they, they feel alienated from the organization. They need money for whatever reason and they're going to do something silly. So what can you do to, to create an environment where somebody going through that crisis in their life doesn't succumb to the temptation? Mm. And so communications, um, open communications, training programs, presentations, all of these are, are good and helpful things that companies can do. Excellent. All right. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. This was great. Well, thank you, Tim. I wish you a great weekend. Thank you. And thank you for listening. The Watchdog will continue in two weeks with another exploration of the risk and security world. And subscribing, whether it's through iTunes or your favorite podcast app, is the easiest way to keep up with any new episode. But every episode will also be available at resolver.com slash watchdog. So if you've been enjoying The Watchdog, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And in the meantime, help us spread the word to anyone you think might enjoy this podcast. Every single reference helps. And also, if you liked what you heard on today's episode, join us at Intersect, a forward-thinking risk and security conference happening in San Diego this May, where we'll be recording a live episode of The Watchdog. For more information, visit resolver.com slash intersect. See you in two weeks.